Uh, we are continuing. We've been working on a series called Connecting with God for quite some time now. Uh, and this will be the second message dealing with a specific aspect of prayer. And just as we did with the Bible and we did with uh, music, I want to look at the history of prayer throughout church history. And I know it's been interesting to look at how the Bible was used throughout church history and how music has been used throughout church history. And I want to talk today about how prayer has been used throughout church history. And more so, I want to focus on aspects of prayer that might be a little different than from sort of more the Western or even evangelical perspective and how that's been used throughout church, uh, church history. Uh, again, what is prayer? I'll go back to our definition that we talked about last week. And that is prayer is simply an outpouring of your heart to God and then making room in your life to hear back from Him. Prayer is how we see heaven invade earth. It's what opens up the floodgates for God to come down and be involved in our everyday circumstances. And last week we talked about uh, just how Jesus modeled prayer for us and how he prayed a lot. I mean, if there was anybody who didn't need to pray, it would be Jesus <laughs> being, you know, fully God, fully man. But he was constantly in prayer. And that shows us that, I mean, how much more do we need to be in prayer as Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer, or in Luke 6, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night, and it seemed to be this practice of Jesus that he spent a lot of time in prayer, and I think it's because he knew that prayer makes a difference, that prayer brings heaven to, to earth. Uh, we talked about how the early church prayed a lot. In Acts chapter 1, it says they all met together and were constantly united in prayer, in Acts 2, that all the believers devoted themselves, and one of the things they devoted themselves was to prayer. And that's, of course, a challenge to the modern-day church, um, because I don't think you can say this too much about uh, a, a lot of the modern-day church, that, that we're constantly united in prayer and that we're devoting ourselves to prayer. I know prayer is important, uh, but it's one of those things I think we could always be doing more. And then we just scan through the Scriptures, just how the Scriptures is constantly encouraging us to pray. Uh, Romans 12, be joyful in hope and patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Or Ephesians 6, always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Or 1 Timothy 2, I want men everywhere to pray. Or Philippians 4, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And Colossians 4 says to devote yourselves to prayer. And 1 Thessalonians 5 says to pray continually, that this, this aspect of just breathing our, our, our heart up to God and receiving His Word back should just be part of our daily practice and our everyday day movement. And, and we are to be in, in prayer. And this happens to be one of our core values. We have a number of core values. If you ever want to know what we're about and what is important to us, there are core values is out in the foyer. But one of them is prayer, that we really believe that prayer does change things. And we've seen things change. And I mean, Lyle this morning was just talking about uh, a lot of answered prayer that he saw this week. And it does change things. And the verse that we have under our, our core value is Luke eleven nine, where Jesus says, So I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. That Jesus taught us that, that at times sometimes we need to persistently pray. That it's not just a matter of throwing up a prayer and leaving it there, but 
to keep on asking, to keep on praying, to press in, to pray and to pray and to pray. And that seems to be what the New Testament is encouraging us to do is to pray a lot. Now I want to talk a little bit about just some of the studies around prayer. I mean, within Christian circles and in theological circles, there have been lots of books written on answers to prayer. And I've shared this one probably a few times here. This uh, Craig Keener is one of the most notable New Testament scholars of today, and he wrote a two-volume work. It's over 1,200 pages long, just filled with stories and testimonies of miracles and answered prayer all over the world. And there's just hundreds of thousands of even modern-day answers to prayer, and they're well-documented in these two cases. But even uh, more like secular studies on prayer have shown that prayer actually does something. And I just went through a few studies this week. And uh, one study on prayer and depression said that participants receiving the prayer intervention showed significant improvements of depression and anxiety. Another study on prayer and marriage said that, um, said several studies at Florida State University showed that people who prayed for their marriages reported greater relationship satisfaction. Uh, There was a study um, on prayer and cancer I said, spiritual interventions, like prayer, improve spiritual well-being and quality of life and reduce depression, anxiety, and hopelessness for patients with cancer. Another one on prayer and relationships, a psychologist by the name of Frank Fickham spent more than 20 years studying prayer in the context of close relationships, and he concludes that praying for one's partner enhances both cooperation and forgiveness. And one of the studies I really like is the study done by uh, Dr. Candy Gunther-Brown, and she's got a PhD from Harvard. She's a professor at Indiana University. And she did a study on prayer where she um, heard about a lot of these miraculous claims from, you know, coming out of Africa, particular out of Iris Ministries with Heidi Baker. And so she contacted Iris Ministries and said, hey, would you mind if we came along with a bunch of scientists and test equipment and tested out all these stories about all this answered prayer that we keep hearing about, you know, the blind seeing and, and the deaf being able to hear. And Iris Ministries and Heidi Baker actually said, sure, and come along. And so a bunch of scientists came along with Heidi Baker and went to Mozambique. And, you know, she often goes out into these remote villages and prays for folks. And, and they went out there and what they did is they took their uh, eye test equipment, these scientists, and their hearing test equipment and they tested all these villagers and how well they could hear and how good they can see. And then they had, you know, the prayer team from Iris Ministries come and pray for all these people and then they retested these people and they found in almost every case there was significant improvement in eyesight and hearing. In fact, there was one case where they said there's one gal that could, could not really hear anything, and after she was prayed for, could actually hear a conversation. And I think I have a little video clip of her find, uh, talking about her results here. I worked with medical researchers to conduct a study of the therapy. Let's try that again here. I worked with medical researchers to conduct a study of the therapeutic effects of proximal intercessory prayer on auditory and visual impairments in rural Mozambique. And we can here come to the next slide. Here, I'll back up. One more? Okay. 
I worked with medical researchers to conduct a study of the therapeutic effects of proximal intercessory prayer on auditory and visual impairments in rural Mozambique. And we can here come to the next slide. We used a portable audiometer and vision charts uh, and evaluated 24 consecutive Mozambican subjects uh, who were prospectively recruited. So we tested everyone who came forward saying that they had these problems. And even with a relatively small sample size, we found large enough effects in individual subjects and consistent enough effects across the study population uh, that we were able to determine statistical significance. For hearing, as we go to the next slide, uh, we can find that there were highly significant improvements post-PIP, which is proximal intercessory prayer. Two subjects had their hearing thresholds uh, reduced by over 50 decibels. And to give you a sense of how dramatic that is, if you're standing right next to a motorcycle, that's 100 decibels. Or as if you're in a quiet environment and you've got good hearing, then that would be zero. Decibels. So these are very, this is a very large change in hearing threshold. You can see in the slide on your left uh, the individual changes uh, for um, particular subjects in hearing. And then the slide on the right shows you uh, that it wasn't simply the case that it was um, quieter after we did the test than before, and that's why people had better hearing. Actually, the ambient noise stayed about the same. That's the tiny little bar on the far right, whereas the changes in hearing uh, were, were quite considerable. We also found significant effects for vision. Uh, there were significant improvements post-PIP. Three subjects went from 2,400 or worse, and that's reading the top line of a vision chart, that big E that you usually see, uh, to being able to read uh, the 2080 line of an eye chart, which is relatively small print. One subject went from being able to, um, unable to count fingers from one foot away, or even see that there was a hand, uh, to being able to read the 2125 line of a vision chart, which is also relatively small print. And that was after about a, a minute of prayer from Heidi Baker in that case. We also compared the results of our study with uh, results found in studies of hypnosis and suggestion on vision and hearing, uh, and uh, found that PIP resulted in greater average, which is the slide on the left, and greater maximum improvements in visual uh, and, and auditory acuity. And the comparison is especially relative, uh, relevant because you would expect similar possible confounds to be at play with hypnosis and with PIP, and things like the well-known placebo effect. Uh, and yet we found that there were much larger improvements for PIP than there were for even hypnosis. Uh, we also did a replication study in Brazil and also found significant effects. Uh, she says, uh, our studies show something is going on with Pentecostal and charismatic intercessory prayer. This is not just wishful thinking. Something is going on, and it surely warrants our attention. And again, that was a peer-reviewed medical journal, and she did those studies. So uh, prayer changes things, and that's why we like to pray. Now I want to, the rest of the time, just focus in on prayer and how it's kind of was utilized over church history. Um, and one of the first things we see is that often folks uh, in the early church prayed a little bit differently than we do. This is a picture of uh, someone praying from uh, one of the art pieces on, in the Roman catacombs of someone who is praying with their 
hands up and their eyes looking towards heaven. That was the standard posture for prayer back in those days. I mean, today when we say, let's pray, we pretty much all go, you know, we close our eyes and bow our head. If, you know, in the early church, if you say, hey, let's pray together, they'd put up their hands and look towards heaven. And we actually see that, of course, in the scripture in, in 1 Timothy 2.8, it says, in every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And so they prayed with uh, hands lifted up, eyes up, and it might be something you want to try um, to open your eyes actually when you pray and to keep them open. Um, I actually find it more helpful, especially in prayer meetings when, you know, when I keep my eyes closed for too long, I want to fall asleep or I, might, I start thinking about lunch or something like that. Uh, but when I keep my eyes open and I look at the person praying, I find I can pay more attention and, and I can imagine Jesus there and visually as I open my eyes. So uh, that's how, how they, they prayed. Uh, one of the earliest documents outside the New Testament that we see that is talking about prayer is found in the, the Didache, which is about 100 AD. And, um, and it says this, Let not your fasts be with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and the fifth day of the week. Rather fast on the fourth day in the preparation, Friday. Do not pray like the hypocrites, but rather as the Lord commanded in his gospel like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily needful bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one or from evil. For thine is the power and the glory forever. And then it ends with this, it says, pray this three times each day. And so this idea of, of set prayer began very, very early of praying, as we see in the book of Daniel and, and other religious tra tra traditions of people praying, you know, at nine o'clock, noon, and three o'clock, or three times a day. And this was what some of the early church leaders suggested to their folks. And of course, the Lord's Prayer would be the most famous prayer of all time, of all church history. And so I thought that we could pray it together. And so let's pray this along, uh, to pray out loud along with me. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for the kingdom the power and the glory are yours now and forever Amen. And no doubt over uh, being Sunday, to me in our time zone, this is probably prayed hundreds of thousands of times over the world uh, as, as Christians pray the most famous of all prayers. Around 200 AD, we see another aspect of prayer coming in, and that is the sign of the cross. And you've probably seen, you know, people do this before, which is the sign of the cross. This came very early into church around 200 AD. Uh, it is still used today by Catholic, Lutheran, uh, Oriental, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Methodist, and Anglican traditions. Uh, other folks use it as well, but it's still very common. But it began very, very early on in church history. And it's often, you know, the prayer goes in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy, and you cross over Spirit. Amen. Uh, like so. And um, basically, it uh, has a little hand gesture which also began very early. And you take your thumb and your two fingers and you put them together. And this is to remind you of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then your two fingers go down, which is to remind you of 
Jesus being fully God and fully man. And so you hold your hand like that, and uh, you go from top to bottom. If you're Catholic, you go left to right. If you're Orthodox, you go right to left, or whatever your choice is. Uh, but it's in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You ready to give it a try? If you want to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So that's the, the sign of the cross, uh, often used in prayer. Um, it's kind of a, a neat way. If you're one who likes to engage your body or uh, you like the aspect of more tradition, you can end your prayers like that or make that part of your prayer time. But this goes right back to the very, very early church. Uh, we also see another church leader uh, very early on, about 200 AD. He instructed, uh, Hippolytus instructed Christians to pray seven times a day. So he moved it from three. He wanted seven on the times a day on the rising at the lighting of the evening lamp, at bedtime, at midnight, and the third, sixth, and the ninth hours of the day. And there's this fascination with this verse where it says in 1 Thessalonians to pray continually. And they were trying to just develop ways in which you can constantly be in prayer. And of course, praying three times a day or seven times a day was helpful. And then um, in the third century is where we begin to see the second most famous prayer of all time. The first would be the Lord's Prayer. The second most, most famous prayer in all of church history is what is called the Jesus Prayer, which is this prayer which says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And this prayer began to develop around the third century. And part of the reason why some of these simple prayers developed was the vast majority of people were illiterate. They couldn't pray the Psalms. Uh, again, as we talked about the Bible, nobody had a Bible until, you know, uh, just, just recent history. And so these short prayers, which illiterate people could memorize, we began to use and were very, very common. This prayer was later adapted in history to, they added a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, the Orthodox Church still uses more of the top one. Some people adapt and will add your child because you know, uh, the New Testament really doesn't use a sinner, a, a title for Christians. They don't, New Testament doesn't really call us sinners. It calls us saints or children is the more common word or in Christ. Very rarely does it label us as sinners because our identity has changed in Jesus. Um, so the, the earliest one was actually the top one. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Uh, this is where this idea of breath prayers, which we do sometimes here, came about very early in the church, again around the third century, based on this Jesus prayer, where you begin to pray and use your breath. And, and what they would do was they would, on the inhale, they would pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And on the exhale, exhale they would pray, have mercy on me. And this is where this idea of breath prayers come in. And if you are... Uh, uh, more contemplative, then this is one way of praying where you can just slowly use your breath and to pray this prayer over and over again. And, and we've done this a few times, but you don't have to stick with the Jesus prayer, but you could take any scripture verse that is short and use it as a breath prayer. You could come up with your own phrase uh, in time of need. I mean, you can inhale, there is no fear and exhale in your love or inhale peace of Christ. And exhale, guard my heart and mind, or the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And these breath prayers, again, date very early on in the church. And so let's take a moment to do some breath prayers. Maybe we can do five or six, but you can pick whatever you want. And just to, to pray through that.
And of course, these kind of prayers are very helpful when you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling anxious, uh, when you're feeling afraid, uh, when you need to really just acknowledge the presence of God. You can use breath prayers. Uh, also, along with the third century, along with the Jesus prayer, developed this um, idea of prayer ropes. And this was used along with the, mostly with the Jesus prayer. And they would take bits of string, a rope, and they would uh, tie knots all throughout. And then you would tie this around your wrists or you would have it uh, wherever. And you would take this prayer rope and you would begin to grab each knot and pray, you know, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And go to the next knot, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And the idea was to pray constantly and to pray consistently. And so uh, prayer ropes, and you can still buy these. You can get them on Amazon in little bracelets. Uh, you can pray them for yourself. You can actually take them and pray the Jesus prayer for someone else. You know, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on Sally, or Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on Bill. Or you can use a prayer rope to uh, just pray for anybody, uh, or to just use it for prayer, prayer time, and to go through them and have different prayers for each one. So these prayer ropes do, do, uh, go back way towards the third century. Now, uh, out of the prayer rope became the rosary. And if you've been from the Catholic tradition, you would be aware of what is called the rosary. And this developed way later on, uh, much further on from the prayer rope. The Orthodox Christians still use prayer ropes. Uh, Roman Catholics use uh, the rosary, which developed kind of 13th up to the 16th century. And there's a whole system of going through the rosary. after those beads in different size beads. And it has, you know, you have Hail Marys and Glory Bees and Our Fathers. And you make it through. And you have the Apostles' Creed and, and of course, the Lord's Prayer in there. Um, a lot of people wonder what, you know, Hail Marys are because we, you know, the, the, the expression, you know, I'm going to give up a Hail Mary or if you know football, a Hail Mary toss or whatever. It's basically a last de desperate attempt, you know, the Hail Mary, but it's actually a prayer in the Roman Catholic tradition. Of course, the Our Father would be the Lord's Prayer. The Glory Be, which is part of the Rosary, would be Glory Be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. And then they have all these Hail Marys. Um, if you've been part of Roman Catholicism, you'll probably have this memorized. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Uh, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. And this, of course, is, uh, you know, especially in the evangelical world, is like, what in the world are you doing? Praying to Mary. <laughs> um, because you notice that this is actually a prayer to the Virgin Mary. Um, and, and sometimes this is kind of a sort of misunderstood in evangelical circles. And sometimes Roman Catholics make it bigger than maybe they should. But the reality is, this idea of praying to the saints is actually part of Christian tradition for most of church history, Christians just naturally prayed to the saints. It was part of our prayer tradition. I uh, go way back to the, uh, 200 AD, we see Origen saying this, not the high priest Christ alone prays for those who pray sincerely, but also the angels, as also the souls of the saints who have already fallen asleep. And so what they were very early on in the church, they believed that not only that Jesus intercede for us, as it talks about in, in Romans, but they also believe angels interceded for us. And they also believe that saints, uh, Christians who died and were in heaven, also prayed for us. And so it developed this idea that, 
that, uh, you know, why I, I can pray to God. Of course we do that. And, but I also, I go to my brother and sister who's alive and I say, hey, Tamara, could you pray for me? Or, hey, Gary, for, can, I, can you pray for me? But they also said, I'm going to also ask St. Peter and I'm going to ask Moses and I'm going to ask all these other people uh, to pray for me as well. And so the idea was to have more people praying for them because they believed in the power of prayer. And they based this off Hebrews 12 uh, and other verses. Uh, Hebrews 12 says, we are surrounded, talking about, you know, dead Christians who are in heaven. Uh, we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. And they believe that all these dead saints were looking down on us and that they were praying for us. And they believe that there was kind of an open heaven where we could pray to God. But just as I ask Tamara to pray for me, I can ask Mary to pray for me and Peter to pray for me and John to pray for me. I mean, Revelation 8, 5, 8, they would use where it talks about the 24 elders that fell down before the lamb and each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And there'd be God's people both living and those ones who were in heaven. And they often focus on James 5, where it says the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. And they figured... Wow, when someone dies and they go to heaven, they are made righteous and perfect. So surely their prayers are really, really powerful. So I'm not going to just ask living folks to pray for me. I'm going to ask as many people in heaven to be praying for me as well because their prayers are powerful. And so this tradition of having praying to the saints came about. And um, for most of church history, this was just common practice among Christians. It's only sort of recent history, some Protestant, especially evangelical circles, like our, our kind of circles, where often it's kind of like, oh, you don't do that. But it's actually far more church history, prayed to the saints, than didn't pray to the saints. Here's another quote from uh, an early church father. He says, let us on both sides of death always pray for one another. Let us relieve burdens and afflictions by mutual love, that if one of us by swiftness of divine condescension, shall go hence first. Our love may continue in the presence of the Lord and our prayers for our brethren and sister not cease in the presence of our Father's mercy. In other words, when you die and go to heaven, don't stop praying for people on earth. <laughs> and so this de developed the idea of just as I ask you for prayer, we can ask the saints for prayer and they're all praying and the more people are praying, the, the more heaven comes to earth. And so that's where this tradition of actually praying to the saints came from. And it's still the practice of most Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Roman Catholic, as well as some Lutheran and Anglican churches. So the three big divisions, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, we see that there's aspects of praying to the saints all mixed in that. And again, that happened very early on in history. In the sixth century developed another form of prayer, which we've also done here quite often, called Lectio Divina. And this is where you pick a passage of scripture. And if you're part of the church, you will be familiar with this and you read it. And then you ask questions of the text as we go through. And uh, maybe we'll do that, that next week. Uh, praying before meals. I guess, again, a common practice throughout church history. Uh, we see when Jesus took loaves and gave thanks to God. We see Jesus taking a cup of wine and giving thanks to God that Jesus seemed to pray before meals. And so develops tradition of, of Christians praying before meals. And it's not to be some legalistic thing. I mean, it's funny all the different rules you see. Like some people are like, you only pray if the meal is big. If it's just one thing, you don't pray. And you pray for dinner, but you don't have to pray for breakfast or lunch. Or you have to pray for every single piece of food you eat or whatever it might be. I, I mean, it's not supposed to be religious, but it's just... 
even just having a thankful heart, even if it's prayed in silent, but it's been a tradition. Another interesting tradition is prayer mats. I mean, often when we think of prayer mats and kneeling on prayer, line of prayer, we might think of Islam, and it's what you often see, you know, prayer mats. But uh, far before Islam even started, Christians used prayer mats, uh, mostly because, I mean, they didn't have nice floors like we do, and they had dirt floors, and so they would have mats that they would use for prayer. Um, and not only did they just pray like this, but we see Jesus at one time he falling to the ground in prayer, prayer. And so sometimes they'd use prayer mats to kneel on or bow down or even lay down on these prayer mats to pray. And so we see all these different postures being used in prayer. Uh, another piece of history that you see all throughout church history, which is not as common in sort of, um, you know, maybe sort of the more evangelical, charismatic kind of circles, but some of us may have them, is these, these home altars or prayer corners, which are dedicated spaces for prayer. Maybe a corner of your house or a, a part of your house where there are these prayer corners, and here would be like a traditional Catholic prayer altar, and uh, here would be a traditional Orthodox prayer. I mean, I love the Orthodox. If you've been to an Orthodox church, they love bling. I remember in Israel, I mean... <laughs> The churches are just full of bling. I mean, this is awesome. And so they have all this bling all the time, um, which is why some people who are more into the arts or more uh, contemplative are often attracted more to the orthodox because they have all these, these icons and objects and things that engage the senses and the smells with incense and, and it's very engaging with, with some of those traditions. Here would be a typical Protestant uh, home altar or another Protestant home altar. And, uh, and also, uh, throughout history, you see the use of, of prayer desks. You will see these in certain churches still today. These dedicated desks that are actually made for prayer, specifically for prayer, where you would kneel and you have a spot for your Bible or to, to put your hands like this and to pray. And uh, you can go into certain churches and still see these, these prayer desks. Uh, some of you might actually want to make a own, your own home altar or prayer altar. Uh, some people, I mean, if you remember the very first message where we talked about different ways people engage and feel close to God. Some of you are outdoor folks, and if you're going to pray, you're going to go outside. And, and I like to do that. I like to wander in the woods and pray. Uh, some of you need a dedicated space, and, and a home altar can be very helpful because it's a spot you can go, and you have this, this daily tradition of going to your home altar, and you don't take your phone, you don't take your computer. It's just a dedicated space. And so what often people do is they will have a tablecloth on some sort of table, and you know that different tablecloth colors have different meanings in Christianity. Purple stands for royalty. White is often used for Easter or purity. You have red, which uh, often around Good Friday for the, the death of Christ. A lot of people put a candle on their home altar to remind us of the light of Jesus, being the light of the world or the presence of the Holy Spirit. And of course, a lot of people put a cross on their home altar. Some people have water to remind uh, that Jesus is the living water to remind them of their baptism. And these things, if you're a more sensate kind of a person, you can touch these things as you pray and hold them and, and look at them and engage with them. Some people have objects from nature, like a rock or a flower that reminds you of God's creation. Uh, sometimes there's images or icons, an image of Jesus or a saint or a biblical figure to remind you of those who have gone before you or to focus in on Jesus. Sometimes people have paintings. So here's that famous painting of of Jesus pulling Peter out of the water. You can have this on a prayer altar and you can look at it and allow God to, to speak to you through it. 
Um, of course, a Bible, a devotional prayer book on your home altar, a journal and pen to write down those thoughts that you hear God speaking. Uh, other objects that have meaning to you. There might be other objects that have been passed down through your family that have spiritual meaning. Uh, but some Christians, man, they really dig this and they love their home altar and it just becomes part of their tradition and, and they go there and they just get into these times of prayer that are amazing. For others, mine does not be your thing. But uh, throughout church history and through all traditions of Orthodox Catholic and Protestant, we see the use of home altars. And then, uh, just to end this little chat here, I'm going to end without an end of prayer because there are different ways you can end prayers, of course. Uh, traditionally, it's been amen, which just means so be it. We see this used in the Bible, like Romans 15, and now may God, who gives us his peace, be with you all, amen. And right again, Justin Martyr, 150 A.D., describes the congregation responding, amen, to the benediction after the celebration of the communion. So that tradition, again, goes right back to the early church, that when we finish a prayer, we say, amen, or so be it. Uh, the other one is in Jesus' name, or in Jesus' name, amen, which comes from John 14, where Jesus says, whatever you ask for in my name, I'm going to do it. And so we get very serious about that, especially if you're a charismatic. In Jesus' name, because well, he's going to do it. And, and Jesus made this promise. If we ask in his name, he's going to do it. And so this becomes a common phrase, especially in charismatic Christianity. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, because of this awesome little verse in John 14. And then more in some of the traditional churches, you would often see this phrase being used, especially with the sign of the cross, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. And that comes from Matthew chapter 28, where it says, We baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.